March 7, 2007, is Watt from Pedro Show.
Okay, that was John Coltrane with Crescent from his Live in Japan record, his last tour. And we're broadcasting here from Crans, Montana, Switzerland. I have the immense pleasure and honor to have Mr. Steve McKay, Mr. Scott Ashton joining me here at a, uh, what's it called? Hotel Park? Hotel Du Park. Hotel Du Park. And uh, first time I've ever done a remote lot from Pedro show, so this is an exciting thing for me here. Uh, you want to say hi, Steve? Hey there. Scotty? Yo. Yeah. So yesterday we did a bunch of TV in Paris, France. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, it was good. People loved it. It was rocking. And, uh, everything went well. And, uh, we had a good time. What did you think, Steve? Well, I didn't get to play yesterday. I got to sit around and watch a lot. <laughs> but, but the I, day before yesterday. For the day before yesterday, I got to play a bunch of songs. Yeah. And that was fun. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I would have rather been there not playing than hanging out sulking in my hotel room. Okay. Okay. I think... Uh, that was some first uh, TV stuff we did with Stooges, like that, where we go in the studio. Huh? Yeah, that yeah, was the first race band. Yeah, I mean, we've had people tape our gigs, right, and put them on TV. But that's the first time where we yeah, did Yeah, like, like MTV Serbia and stuff right, like that. Yeah. In Australia, the big day out, right. I think they did the whole Sydney show. Oh, it's happened a lot, a lot of times, yeah. yeah. We never this first it. time where we're, like, yeah. prepped just for the event. We never see it. We did the Henry Rollins show. Did you That's see it? right. Yeah. No, no, it don't come out till maybe this month or the next. That's right. In December, we did Hank Rollins. You did. Yeah, yeah Steve wasn't there, unfortunately. Oh, and the MTV thing. We did uh, this BAM wedding reception. BAM's Unholy Union. And Steve McKay was there for that. Yes, I was. Thank you, Iggy. Okay. Oh, that's right. What was that about? That was a last-minute thing, huh? Yeah, yeah, and it was cool because we got to uh, kind of get a 
paid rehearsal of some of the new songs from the new record, The Weirdness. And I got to play on more songs than I did on the album, and we had a good time. Yeah, but I don't think that's been aired yet, right? You said you watched it, and he was getting his Christmas tree? Yeah, and that was last week, so... So he's way behind? It's going to be on in a couple of weeks or something, yeah. All right. Yeah, they have to go through the bachelor party first. What was another first about that uh, BAM gig? Another first about the BAM. Yeah, concerning the Stooges. Well, it was a wedding. We were the wedding band. Yeah? Oh, you're right. But there was another thing. Um, what was that? Bass player was in a boiler suit. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah? yeah. Watch the first look. Bo- yeah, the new outfit. A boiler suit. I want one. Yeah. It can be matching bookends. <laughs> and, and what's your reply to that? You're in T-shirts now, right? Well, since you had stopped wearing T-shirts or chose to stop wearing T-shirts. No, I got a call from Meg. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody has to do it. Yeah. It's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. You tucking them in? Nope. <laughs> we don't tuck them in, and black is really flattering for me. I'm not the skinny guy I used to be. Is that true? That's true. I know. Ronnie told me he used to be very svelte, supple, and willowy. Very, very. He ran track. Yeah. Cross country, too. I was, yeah. a, I was a star. It was because there wasn't any balls, and nobody was trying to hit me, at least overtly, or knock me down. So. It's been a while since I ran a mile. Yeah, what changed? I don't know. I, I can't blame it on the music. But Was it after coming to Cali? Yeah, I kept it up for a while after I moved out here. Because you're originally from Grand Rapids? Yeah. Yeah, I moved out to California in 77. But you, in between was Ann Arbor? Well, bef- before, I, I, I grew up in Grand Rapids, and I went to University of Michigan and spent more time working at the record store and playing in bands than I did in class. But That's exactly what Jim did. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, stayed on for too long and played with Mojo Boogie Band for about five years and then bailed on that and things were getting a little rough around there. Ah, uh, you were in Cali a little bit, though, for the Funhouse record, huh? Yeah, for like six weeks or something. That's, I, I used to live in California when I was like in kindergarten and stuff. I was a, sort of a Navy brat. Ah. So you know about that, don't you? No, I know about that. Are you saying your pop was a sailor? My pop was, my pop was a pilot. He was a carrier pilot. In the Navy, but a flyboy. Yeah, except he, he got really lucky. If you ever have to get into a war, make sure that you pick something that takes a really long time to train for. Because <laughs> he entered in 43, and when he got out, when he got his wings was December of 45. So all they had to do was go out and watch atomic bombs go off at bikini and things like that. <laughs> yes, totally. Well, we're at the end of the first hour. March 7, 2007, Watt with Pedro Show. Hold tight for hour two. March 7, 2007, it's Watt from Pedro Show, second hour. Here's some Steve McKay.
Uh, that was Steve McKay with Face Up on Dash. Steve, you want to tell us something about that tune there? Who played on it? Well, let's see. We had it's myself and a guy named Melvin Ocasio. I think he's from L.A. I'm not sure. And a guy named Fabrizio Palumbo, otherwise known as R., who is from Torino in Italy. Yeah. And we got together at the studios of KFJC. In Los Altos. In Los Altos. NorCal. NorCal, uh, volunteer radio station. Great and, station. And they, uh, they, they're on the web. Right. They, they got a sister station with WFMU in New York. And uh, this is part of a... Well, New Jersey, I think. Yeah, New Jersey. Metro New York. But yes, exactly. Much respect to New Jersey. Jersey City, if you want to get specific. Yeah. That's fine. But yeah, I played live on the air there. Yes, I have. Ryan uh, Turner. I have too. A couple different times, yeah. Good cat. Absolutely. And this was uh, on the Dominic Tricks show. And uh, it was with uh, part of a collective that... Uh, I play with called the Radon Ensemble. Yeah, tell us about that. That's like an international collective of, I don't know, largely noise music people. So I'm sort of like the voice in the wilderness, being on the saxophone. Although I try to, sometimes there's effects and sometimes there's some squawking and things like that. And, uh, oh gosh, we recorded that a few years ago. What's the tune about? Um... Well, we kind of like make these songs up and then later on we figure out what the titles are. And this title was from When You Park in the Parking Lot, the parking ticket says this on it. (laughs) But I thought it sounded kind of interesting and sort of like, what would you be doing with your face up on the dash? I don't know. What kind of a car was it? (laughs) Sometimes that's for the back seat. Yeah, but, so you improved it and then titled it later. Yeah, that's what we usually do. Right. So we come up with all kinds of things. This is from my uh, CD called uh, Steve McKay, Michigan and Arc Tourists. Ah, new is, album. Yeah, which is available on Radon Records. And you can get in touch with them at radoncollective.org. Spell it. R-A-D-O-N-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-E dot O-R-G. Yeah. So go there. Check it out. Get Steve uh, McKay's CD. Yep. And uh, we've played uh, in various combinations uh, all over the United States and uh, in many portions of Europe. Right, right. In fact, you did a, what, like a Tennessee tour? Last. I, I, I did. Yeah, I did. We did a, did a mini Tennessee tour, and then we did another one last year, about this time where we started out in Nashville and worked our way down to Atlanta, and then all the way up to Boston, and right. finished off in Brooklyn with a recording session. Great. Yeah. Who's the ringleader? Uh, Scott Neidegger. Yeah. <coughs> and. Uh, How many members are there? Have we done? The, well, we have. We have like. I guess I'm I'm now one of the core members of all this, but there are uh, 
I don't know, 10 or 15 people like that, and then we have other people we're kind of associated with. Do you guys take on new members? or? Well, yeah, all the time. Some drop off? Some drop off, yeah. Some, some break up, some end up in Turkish prisons. <laughs> Over the side. Unfortunately, but yeah. Interesting concept. Yeah, I really like it. It, 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 uh, it's been giving me a lot of interesting stuff to do. Uh, How long you been with it? Boy, it's been about five years now. Five years? At least, yeah. And uh, what number CD is this uh, for Steve McKay? I guess it's uh, this is the second one. Second? Yeah, the first one uh, called On Voyage, and that's a little yeah. bit harder to find. That's like <coughs> studio, old studio tracks and... Uh, more kind of like rock and roll songs. And like then that. there was some vinyl? Oh, uh, after uh, Michigan and Arcturus came out, another one came out uh, on the Cubico label. And that's in uh, vinyl only. And I think he only makes about 500 at a time. But if you go to eBay, you can see if you can get one. <laughs> we may put that out on a CD. We've got permission to do so. That one's called Tunnel Diner. Right. And that's... Uh, some, uh, some stuff from 2004, and most of it was actually from last year, 2006, and that's stuff from uh, Portland, and uh, that's stuff from uh, Marseille in France, and... Uh, Porto? I don't know if there's any Portuguese. Yeah, there, I think there's some Portuguese stuff on there, too. Yeah, Porto. So the other members of Radon, do they also put out their own material? Oh, they certainly do. Yep. And uh, they're out there with their little merch tables at, you know, clubs well-known or not uh, around the world. Yeah, yeah. Great. And there's Italian folks too, right? Yeah, we've got a, we've got a, a branch in in uh, Torino, and, and we got people in Milano. You've played with the Zoo Cats? Yeah, I played. I've got to go out with them in 2005 uh, for. Uh, and we played in uh, Slovenia, and we played in Italy, and uh, we played in yeah, we played in, in Vienna, and. Uh, I ended up doing about I don't know ten days on the road with those guys. That was that was a real honor. Maso, yeah. I got to play with them in Silver Lake uh, on Dose at Spaceland. Great band. Oh, I, I love it. It's like a mostly Barry Sax bass and drums. Right. But didn't you do a gig with three saxes? Uh, we've done gigs with more saxes than that. I think we <laughs> we did one in uh, with Radon. We did one in uh, Chicago at the. Uh, Oh boy, what was Empty that bottle? Yeah, the empty bottle in Chicago uh, last fall, and we had four at that point. Wow. That was great. Wasn't there a, a notorious picture of people displaying the bells? The bells? Yeah, like they lifted up their shirts. Oh, that was from Portugal, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And yep. you had the baby bell. As it turned out, the, the, we, as we know from what that means, that means middle-aged guys' beer guts. <laughs> and that was that was that was an international effort. One of them was Argentinian, one was Czech, and one was Yankee me. So, right, but you were the, you had the baby bell. I was surprised. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you got some, some work cut out for you. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work in the opposite direction, but I'm kind of holding the line right now. Okay. At, at about at about 80 kilograms. So. <laughs> Do your math, right? <laughs> you got future plans for radar? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're. I, I, I think I, I heard that uh, Nidegger was going to set me up and send me down to uh, Austin in the next couple of months. So he had some people down there. You know, probably be one of those things where Texas. Where, where, I, where I blow into town and meet some band I never met before and, and make music with them. But I, I'm 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 kind of used to that. So, well, you'll also be there at the studio. Right? Well, we're going to be there much sooner. Uh, St. Patrick's Day. All three of us and and the rest of the guys. Right, right. For right. South by Southwest. Yeah. Can we talk talk about Stooges, Scotty? Can you talk about how the band started? <clears throat> yeah, I was uh, I was playing drums with Gary Quackenbush. He was a member of the SRC, the band uh, Dan Arbor. And uh, what we would do is, here. it would be 67. And uh, we'd sit around with John Mayles and the Blues Breaker album and uh, listen to it and then try to copy it, just the two of us, guitar player and drums. So No bass. No bass. And so, you know, I was just messing around. So people were coming over to the house. Bob Seeger would come over. Glenn Fry would come over. You know, all the locals, they were just getting their start. They'd come over and hang out. And, you know, we'd talk music. And I was very, very much interested in uh, being in a band. And then one day, uh, my brother and Jim came over one evening and said, uh, we're starting a band, and uh, we want you to be in it. Do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. So, um, But you met Iggy previous? I had met him through my brother. My brother played bass in the Prime Movers. And, uh, That's Ron, right? Yeah. And... Uh, Jim worked at Discount Records like Steve. Yeah, I think I got his job, at least a couple people afterwards. Vivian worked there. And, and, uh, Bob Sheff. Bob Sheff worked there. Where was it? It's on the right corner downtown? of State and Liberty, uh, right on the campus, U of N campus. Does it no longer exist? Uh, it's still there. No, they tore it down two years ago. A friend of mine was back there for something, and he gave gave me a picture and said, "There it is." It was still, and then a week later, it was gone. Oh, it's Raven. Yeah. So anyhow, me and Dave and Ron used to go up in the afternoons and stand out in front of the store, looking like we were a rock and roll band. Dave Alexander. Dave Alexander. And uh, we had a little band we were starting, we called the Dirty Shames. <laughs> and we weren't very good, and we actually we would play along with an album of the Birds, the Birds' first album. While it was played. While it was played. And our best number was the Bells of Rhythm. Oh, yeah, good dude. <laughs> and uh, we'd take the phone down in the basement in case someone called and there was a party. We didn't want to miss that. <laughs> And uh, 
Dave came up with the name Dirty Shame. It's just, um, one of the W.C. Fields movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just very, very briefly, he's walking into a saloon, and they flash the camera, the name of the saloon, it's the Dirty Shame Saloon. So he said, Dirty Shame, that's a good name for a band. So we were basically kind of pretending we were a band and hanging out, loving all the music, you know, because at that time, at that age, that's all we wanted to do. You know, that's all I ever thought about, that's all I ever cared about. How old were you? At that time, I was 16. And um, when Ron and Jim came over to the house that that day, I was 17. And um, so we just started getting together. I kind of got out of that band house I was living in. We just started going at it, you know, something totally different than anything else you'd ever heard in your life. And I always say if that band that we originally had started was here today, it would be as much interest as any other band out there now. So uh, we worked for uh, about a year, year and a half. Did you come up with the name of the band right away? Well, not right away. We were uh, had been living in the same house for a while, and uh, there was this uh, chemical going around. It's called LSD, and uh, I was kind of afraid of it. I wasn't sure what it was and if I ever did want it. But I picked up a manager, Ron Richardson, and he said he loved it. He used to go to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist would give it to him, and he'd sit and talk to the psychiatrist while he was tripping. So he came over one day and goes, "Here, guys, you got to try this. You got to try this." And I'm going, "I think I'm going to wait till I'm 18." And I was only 17. I said, "I'll wait. I'll wait till I'm 18." I ended up taking it that night. So. We're all like just totally stumbling around, tripped out of our brains. We ended up in my bedroom, which had like French windows that both sides opened up. My bed was up against the window. We're all three standing on my bed, looking out the window, kind of bouncing around, bumping into each other. I think it was Ron that said, uh, Gab, we're kind of like the Three Stooges on acid. (laughs) And then we said, hey, yeah, I said, the Psychedelic Stooges. Yeah, that's the name of the band. Which later we had to drop because Electric Records didn't like the word psychedelic. But uh, basically that's how it started. It was just hanging around, just wanting to be in a band and being fortunate enough to... uh, be in contact with uh, the right people. And now, you were playing some unique drum. Well, we started off like with the drum set, but they want to get came closer to the time where we knew, well, we're going to have to start doing performances. We're going to have to gigs. have gigs. He says, well, uh, we better do something really, really different. So as Jim came up with the idea, well, you can use these 50-gallon oil drums that I found on this farm. And Dave painted them day glow with the sign of ohm on the head of one of them. And we took a black light and put it on the day glow paint and made the sign of ohm shine up in the night, in the dark. 
and put a, a viola contact mic right on the oil drum itself. And with a wood drum beater, when I stomped on that drum beater, you never heard anything like that in the world. People didn't know what to think. They didn't know what to do. They don't know. Do we like this? Do we hate it? What was Iggy playing? Iggy was playing a Hawaiian guitar. He had made a wig out of a woman's bathing cap where he took strips of aluminum foil and stapled them all over the hat, all over the cap, so he had like an aluminum foil wig. He took, he shaved his eyebrows off, and he took baby oil and rubbed it all over his face and then took handfuls of glitter and threw it in his face. He was wearing a a female's tutu with one golf shoe. Is there a male tutu? <laughs> I don't think so. And then he uh, one golf shoe, and he had a piece of metal, a piece of sheet metal on the floor of the stage. And he put a mic down to the sheet metal, and during the song, he would stomp on that with his golf shoe, which created another, what the hell is that? And uh, What was Dave playing? Dave was, uh, at the very beginning, picking up a box bass head with the reverb turned all the way up and dropping it onto the speaker cabinet, creating this huge crash. I guess we were probably the first noise band. I think so. Yeah. Was this uh, after Harry Parch? Was this practice or is this the first gig? That was first gig. And where was it at? Uh, Grandy Ballroom. We had did a little showing at a Halloween party at our manager that we ended up blowing every fuse in the house, so we only played for about ten minutes. But our very first live professional show was the Grandy Ballroom, Detroit. And that's where the oil drums and the tutus and the crash in the bass amp and the Hawaiian guitar through a fuzz box cranked as loud as it could get on a big box amp. What was Ronnie playing? Ronnie was playing bass, fuzz, fuzz tone bass with a wah wah. <laughs> And now, how many songs was it? Well, we didn't really have songs. We had, like, motives, motifs, and it was ready, steady, go, where it went, how it changed, what it did was different every time, where it ended, how it ended was different every time. And uh, Lyrics? Uh, lyrics, uh, mostly just moaning or groaning or kind of screaming. We, we tried to work one song up as a Jane American song called She Cried. And uh, Jim actually sang the words, When I told her I didn't love her anymore, she cried. But it sounded nothing like Jane American, She Cried. You wouldn't have known Jane America when she cried if you didn't hear those words. But other than that, you know, it was just basically, what do we feel like playing? Let's just start playing. You know, we had no songs. It wasn't until uh, record, uh, Electric Record label deal came along where they said, we love you guys, we love Iggy. You guys are really different, you're really cool, but you have to have some songs. What was the reaction at that first gig from the audience? A lot of jaws were dropped. <laughs> uh, a lot of people were sneering. Uh, 
the girls were just loving Jim because he had this attraction to females that was just unbeatable. And uh, people would say, God, that was, what was that? That was terrible, man. Next time we played, those exact same people would be there. So I think it became kind of a thing where people liked to dislike us and they liked to come and see us so they could yell and jeer and see Iggy because not once did he ever do a show that was anything similar to the show before. So it was always like a one-time happening Performance. You got. You guys would have been really good on Radon. As a matter of fact, you, 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 if that band existed today, that's the label that would you'd be on. I when believe. was the first time you saw him, Steve? I saw him. Uh, I guess it was 1968, and at that point, they had titles for songs like "Dance for Romance" and "Asthma Attack," I'm things like on that. Dog food. Living on dog food, but. Uh, and, and, and the first the first time I saw him, they had more like regular instruments, except uh, Jimmy Silver was your manager then. And instead of the 50-gallon oil drum, he had like a 200-gallon home heating oil drum. <laughs> Painted with the wood beaters. <laughs> no, he was playing it with a five-pound sledgehammer. He was playing it with a five-pound sledgehammer, and 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 instead of the ohm sign, they had everyone in the band's astrological glyphs painted on the on the oil tank. Yeah, and it was always fun seeing them. I saw saw them at uh, Union Ballroom in uh, Ann Arbor, and we would see them uh, down at the Grandy Ballroom. Sometimes I would be in a band that would be playing there. Yeah, who would you open up for? Uh, mostly a lot of times MC5. Yep. MC5. And that's when I used to play with Billy C. and the Sunshine. And later on, the Charging Rhinoceros of Soul. And uh, sometimes Carnal Kitchen, my old band. So. Yeah, would you cheer? Oh, no, I loved it. Yeah. I was in, I was into Coltrane and, 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 and outside music. Thank, John Sinclair turned me on to that stuff. So. Okay. Yeah. And so it was like in that vein. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I was really now, happy. You got you said Electra Records. So what? Danny Fields comes to town to sign the MC Five and talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we had a gig at the Union Ballroom. It was us and the Five. And uh, in Danny's own words, after he'd seen the show, he got a hold of uh, Jack Holzman from Electra and said. I just saw the best two bands I've ever seen in my life. You've got to sign them. So it turned out there was a, a signing party, and we both signed together at the same time. But in a way, it was kind of sad because it changed the band so much. I believe if we could have hung in there a little longer, being the band we were before Electra, we might have been able to get away with just being ourselves instead of having to conform to a song with a chorus, a verse, a bridge, a solo, a chorus, a, a, a bridge, a verse, and an ending, you know. And it wasn't the band we were. Right. When does Roddy move to guitar? Uh, shortly after that, Jim said he wanted freedom from having to play an instrument, so Ronnie Switch took over to guitar. And Dave went to bass. Dave went to bass, and Jim was just a wild man, performer, singer. No more wig? 
Uh, no more wig, but plenty of other crazy things. Plenty of unique, different. You see, that was the whole thing in the beginning is we loved MC5, we loved the Yardbirds, we loved the Kinks, we loved a lot of the good rock and roll, and a lot of the blues, rhythm and blues, but we just kind of knew we're not going to be able to sound like that. We can't do that. So if we're going to do something, we're going to have to do something that no one can compare it to and say, well, you guys aren't as good as, as the Yardbirds, you know. So, so once we knew we had something totally original, we couldn't be compared to anybody else. It gave us a better chance of being our own band. Okay. Now, Electra signs you. He wants you to make an album. You guys go to New York to make the album. Yeah, we went to New York to make the album. And, uh, Is that your first time in New York? First time in New York. They gave us each a thousand bucks. I went out and bought a leather jacket, a briar, wood hash pipe, and four ounces of hash. Okay. <laughs> and where'd you stay? Chelsea Hotel? Yeah, we mostly stayed at the Chelsea. That was $6 a night back then. Wow. And uh, John Cale ends up producing the record. Whose idea was that? Uh, That was uh, the label's idea. Uh, I think Cale at that time was working as a uh, staff producer for Electra. Okay. But you told me uh, you were way into Velvets. Yeah, yeah. I love the Velvet Underground, man. And uh, I was excited to have one of them in the studio. And... John Cale was like trying to tell us what we were trying to be the new Velvets. In actuality, we didn't sound anything like the Velvets. But um, when you came there, did you do any gigs, or you just recorded the album? No, no, we played a lot of gigs there. We used to do Electric Circus and before you recorded. Before we recorded, yeah. But we were doing our our old ready set go material. Right, you're not the songs, no, right? They're actually the written songs. in the Chelsea. We came with I think three or four songs to New York. Which ones? I think it was uh, Little Doll, uh, 1969, and uh, I'm not sure what the other one was. But the rest of them were written in a matter of a couple hours in room 101 at the Chelsea Hotel, a room that became famous later for Nancy Spungen shot what's his name? Sid, Sid Vicious in that very same room. That was the room Jim always stayed in. And uh, then we went in the studio the very next day and Never had played the songs live through amplifiers because we were playing them cold. I was beating on a mattress on the bed. <laughs> Ronnie and uh, Dave were playing acoustic, electric acoustic. And uh, Jim was just sitting around clapping his hands. Ah, that's where the clapping comes from. Yeah. So we went in the studio. And so remember what we were playing in the hotel last night? Let's try that. And uh, most of them, like not right, we never had played that song. The first time we played it was the actual take on the album. I think we, we did all the rhythm tracks in two and a half days and another day and a half for the mix and we were done. Damn. 
Whose idea was the piano note, the dog? Uh, it was Jim's. That was Jim's idea. Uh, we didn't want to use a tambourine. The problem with tambourine is when you use one, it makes it a tambourine song. Yeah. So, uh, and the, the simplicity of all of it couldn't take more than one note. Like right, that. right. Did John Cale have ideas for you? He played his uh, violin on We Will, we Will Fall. Fall. He played very moving, very nice piece at the end of that. Yeah. I thought he did a really excellent job. How'd you come up with that? Dave had something to do with that, right? Well, yeah, Dave uh, was a reader. He would read all these books. He would buy uh, everything that was out of the normal books. He read a lot. And uh, he had bought a book of chants and what each particular chant was to do. And it was the uh, Raja Jara Jaran. And that particular chant was, uh, I think, to bring peace of mind. And if you hum, say those words enough time, you actually do start to feel something. You start to feel like you're drifting in outer space. Whoa. We've never gotten to do that song. No. Or Anne. We were right, we thinking play everything off the first two albums except those two songs. Yeah. It, it, it was considered at one point in time. Yeah. I think it was uh, for Hammersmith or something. They were, they were thinking about putting it in there. Wow. Wow. Okay, so you record the first album. Did you think about tour? Oh, yeah, that's all we did. We all crammed into a van and drove all over the Midwest, all up and down the East Coast. And uh, we did fly out to California. And um, we do Minnesota, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston. We played Boston a lot, actually. This is all 1969. Yeah, all 69. Because our manager was a macrobiotic fanatic because he was a fanatic and uh, there was a big macrobiotic community in Boston so he always wanted us to be in Boston so he could go see Michel Cushy and all the strict macro heads I learned a lot from Jimmy Silver Jimmy Silver taught me a lot about a lot of things he introduced me to jazz he introduced me to Healthy Ways Diets. He introduced me to the philosophy of Yin Yang, which I still use this day. And, um, yeah, we toured a lot. Uh, Virginia. And, uh, what was those gigs like? Uh, most of them different was, than the earlier Michigan ones, right? Yeah, most of them was hostile-type crowds. That was like, you know... Here's the here's the geek at the carnival, you know. Let's let's jeer at him, you know. But those same people would show up the next time we played, you know. That was a funny thing. And then we started getting a, a, a following of loyal fans. 
but they were loyal fans that kind of came to see us because they didn't really like us, but they wanted to see it anyhow because everything was different. They knew when they saw us again, it wasn't going to be the same thing they saw before. Right. So it made it interesting, it made it fresh. And then later on, we started getting more dedicated fans. You know, well, 1970 comes. <clears throat> Time for a new record. Time for a new record, and uh, we'd been we moved houses. We had a really nice house. Everyone had their own apartment. It was a huge old farmhouse. We had our equipment set up in the living room of the house, and this we was in Ann Arbor. We would play every day. You know. Every day we were home, about 3 in the afternoon, we'd all get together, we'd all go in, we'd all kick around ideas and play till about 7 or 8 o'clock at night. We did that every single day. So we started coming up with like a new batch, a new batch of stuff that was tighter and more worked out, different energy than the first element. They sent us out to L.A. Well, I was going to get to you. Steve's brought in, right? While you're at this house, right? Yeah. Yep. No, I was I was working at Discount Records, and I knew Jim. I didn't really know you guys, but I knew Jim, and uh, uh, him and Ben Edmonds were sitting across the street in a in a cafe, well, a diner or whatever it was, and. Uh, he came over and he says, "Can you take a break now? I want to come over and we want you to come over and talk to us." And he came over and he says, "Well, I've heard your band, Carnal Kitchen. He was actually the first time Carnal Kitchen played was in 1970, I think, at some art school function called the Beaux Arts Ball, and uh, I think Commander Cody was the headliner in that one. I think I played with all three bands that night. <laughs> Steve never got off the stage. Yeah, yeah." But I remember being impressed by the fact that, that uh, Jim was sitting in the front row watching us. And he must have liked what he heard. And he said, well, come on over to the house tonight. Yeah, so you bring him over to the house. So come over to the house, and he, and, and he comes up with the, 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 the guys come up with, with Fun House. And I, you know, play my weirdness on top of it. And uh, they said, oh, that's good. And in 1970, I played on that one. And uh, then I ended up playing like... L.A. Blues. Yeah, and L.A. Blues. Well, we named it that later, yeah. It was used to be called the hippie ending. To but, but you're working out the songs at the house, but then uh, the plan co- comes to go to L.A. And I... And I I played two, three shows with them, and then the the roadies came in to the record store and said, aren't you excited, Steve? And I said, why? He says, because you're going to L.A. And I says, geez, nobody ever told me that. About a week later, Jim calls me and says, well, you're going to L.A. So I was still going to college then, so I had to like blow off one of my final exams and stuff. Well, whose idea was L.A.? Right? It was a record label I did, and uh, they had Don Bellucci out there. Don- Gallucci. Gallucci. Yeah. And they wanted him to do it and as produce, and that's where he was. The guy that used to be in Don and the Good Times and Kingsman, and, and he was he produced Louie Louie when he was fourteen or something. And he, yeah, he wanted the live sound, and so and 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 that was like people didn't do that then. It was all even then on on, on eight tracks. It was it was uh, you know overdub city, you know. 
So, you go to go out to LA. You set up the studio like a gig. Yeah, we all played live in the same room. Uh, Steve played live with Jim, sang live. There was no separation. You know, it was a little PA. PA is right there, and uh, we were playing like we played in our living room back home. Right, at the farmhouse. Yeah, at the farmhouse. Well, well, it was actually. It was a it was a huge house and it had like separate apartments in it. So Ronnie had his place and Jim had like the one way up in the top floor. And I don't know if I ever visited Scotty's apartment, but someone had written on the wall because people wrote on the walls there. Somebody had written on the wall, "Fun House." Ah, hence the title. Yep. Okay, so you come out to L.A. How long did it take to make the record? Well, we took a little more time with that because... Uh, you have the songs together this time. We have the songs together. We're still actually kind of rehearsing them in the studio. On that box set, you can see how we sure. half songs, do a whole track, do it again, it sounded totally different. So we were still kind of like playing with them. But they were more worked out than the first album was. And like... Uh, Funhouse was actually inspired by James Brown. It's kind of that funky off, syncopated yeah. uh, snare chop. Yeah. But, you know, we put our own stuff to it. And I think when we were working up that is when we were all hearing a saxophone in there. Oh, so you're talking. We are all hearing a saxophone in there. Yeah. And uh, it just seemed fitting. And, you know, the band... You know, we thought kind of needed something, and we just thought the sax would be perfect. And Steve was the man. He was the, probably the best and most well-known horn player in town at that time. So it was just naturally to go to Steve. And uh, we're sorry about you missing your exams. <laughs> well, that's all right, because I got to take the exam later on uh, in some library, and the guy gave me a softball question to write an essay about. And so I did really well, but then when it came time to go back to school yeah. in the fall, I said the art, the art school was on my case. They were like, "We see what you're trying to do, Renaissance man. You got to decide whether you want to be an artist or a musician." Right. And so I uh, no, he's good. They're getting good because they're I, back. I dropped out of college, which of course made me eligible for the draft, and then I had to come up with my I'm crazy scam to get me out of that. Oh yeah, but you guys all had something like that, right? Jim was first. Everybody got letters, right? Jim was first, Ronnie was second. I was the last to go. You're supposed to register on your 18th birthday. I registered on my 19th birthday. And at that time, it was the peak of the war. More soldiers were dying. The battles were heavier and thicker in the whole Vietnam War. Well, we had a lottery with a number system. My number was 44. Yeah, mine, mine was 149. And when I went in for my physical, they were at 125, and it was June. And little did I know that they weren't going to go past 125. So I, re- you know, made okay. sure I was pretty debilitated and had a letter too. So, but what'd you do to run the hustle? Well, there was this band out of New York called David Peel in the Lower East Side, 
and their uh, their logo was a skull and crossbones pirate pirate thing, and uh, they had big badges that they were handing out. So I wore the same clothes for two weeks, slept on the practice room floor, didn't shower, didn't wash my hair, just went around about my daily, everyday business, but just getting myself as dirty as I possibly could. And I took some uh, lipstick and I put, like, Indian war paint on my face. And, this is uh, getting ready for the draft. getting board. ready, getting ready. So I got to ride down there. I missed the bus because you're supposed to take a bus. I got someone to drive me down there. And I walk in. I drank, like, two quarts of beer on the way down there. It was early in the morning. <laughs> I got there. I was pretty brach. And uh, I was late. So I was behind the whole schedule, the written test and the physical exam. Everyone already was ahead of me, so I was in the uh, exam room, written test by myself. So there was a fan in the corner, so I went and I got this fan, and I drug it across the room, and I put it right aimed on my desk. My papers are blowing all over the place. And I started with question number one. That's easy. I marked the wrong answer. <laughs> question number two. I know that. Wrong answer. So when the questions started getting harder, I would just say, try to pick out which one I think was wrong and check it. <coughs> So about halfway through the test, all of a sudden, I started spinning a little bit. The next thing I know, I was hurling all over the place. So they came in, took my uncompleted test with hurl, and took me straight to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist had this big desk, and he had all these little knickknacks and trinkets and little toys all over his desk. And he's asking me questions, and I really couldn't help it. I was picking up things off his desk and looking at him, and he'd say, don't touch that, put that down. So he'd ask me another question, and I'd try to start answering him, and I would just pick something. I wasn't trying to. I'd pick something else up and start looking at it. And he'd go, put that down. So then uh, he calls in the, the sergeant, staff sergeant, and he says, take this guy to station. No, never mind. Just get him out of here. So they walked me to the front gate, opened it up, pushed me out the gate of the fort, and closed it behind me. And there I was in Detroit in a semi-not greatest neighborhood. So I went to this bar. It was only about 9 o'clock in the morning. So I went to this bar and I realized I forgot to bring a dime for a phone call to have someone pick me up. So I stumbled in this bar and there's the old neighborhood people that start drinking in the morning. And I'm trying to borrow a dime. They're all looking at me like I'm from outer space because I'm forgetting what I've actually looked like. Lipstick. I had the lipstick on my face and shit. With skull and crossbones, puke, and I stunk like hell. And, and the people were just like turning away from me. So I went and I sat down in the booth and I ordered a glass of water because I had any money. And I was underage, anyhow. So I laid my head down on the bar, man, and I just I was passing out. I couldn't stay awake. The bartender woke me up, told me I had to leave. Next door to the bar, there was a church 
had long steps leading up to the front door of the church. I walked up about halfway up the stairs and laid on the stairs and fell asleep. Next thing I know, there's two cops with their sticks poking me in the ribs going, get up, get up, get up. I explained to him I'd just come from the fort. I didn't have any money. They said, you're a vagrant, so they ran me in. They threw me in jail. So I went to jail, and I slept there for a while, and I woke up, and started realizing, well, I haven't had a phone call. Nobody knows I'm here. They're probably all wondering, where the hell am I? It was about 10 o'clock at night by then. So I'm yelling, I need a phone call. I'm sticking my head through the bars. I didn't get a phone call. I didn't get a phone call. So there was a shift a shift in the uh, duty, and the new guys came in. And I saw, I could see the new guys coming in. So when I saw one of them, said, hey, I never got a phone call. He goes, you didn't. So he let me out, and I called Bill Cheatham. He came and picked me up. I had to go back to court. $50 fine for being a beggar. And as a couple weeks later, I got a one wide deferred, which means in a case of natural disaster or a case of a big war, that I could be called up to go. Uh, I also had a fractured spinal disc that I got records from the hospital. So I think that had a big part of it because I would have been a guy my first, second week in boot camp. I would have thrown my back out. The government would have been paying for my back for the rest of my life. So I think that had one of the reasons they cut me loose because of my back. Well, so then you got excused from class. <laughs> That's good. See, I, I've heard, I heard a few stories through you. I never heard that one. That's one of the best get-out-of-the-army things. The, the MC5 used to have this kind of priest's robe, and they called it the Zenta robe. And, and when each of them would go down, they'd go down separately, they would be naked underneath the Zenta robe, and they'd say, I'm a high priest of Zenta. And they, that's how they got out. <laughs> and what'd you do? Uh, I had a letter from a psychiatrist. I, I, I was, I think I was psychedelicized. I hadn't slept in a couple of days. And I read this wonderful book called 4F that let you know all of the forms you were going to have to fill out and the first form you fill out, you answer all the questions. And they said, don't answer the last three questions. So, of course, I answered them. It's like, are you a drug addict? Are you a homosexual? It's like, much respect to gay brothers and sisters, but I wasn't. But they, they weren't buying that either. <laughs> and they said, oh, this, I'd gone to this psychiatrist who was, who, who was a homosexual, as it turned out. But uh, he wrote me a letter, and I ended up with, a, with the one Y. Okay. And uh, by the time they got back around to me, uh, as it turned out, I had to fill out a form for the FBI and everything, too. It says, oh, yeah, play music for the White Panther Party and stuff like that. Oh. So they've probably still got a file on me somewhere. Okay. Well, uh, that's the end of the second hour of the Watt from Pedro Show, uh, March 7, 2007. Hold tight for hour three. March 7, 2007. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro show. Now, what we got to continue here is how did Ronnie and Iggy get out of it, going to the war? Well, Ronnie's got his own story, but what I remember is that he uh, hyperventilated 
for hours. He worked himself into the state that just taking a look at him, you go, something's wrong with this guy. So they thought he was on drugs, so they kept him overnight. Well, that, that's what happened to me. They kept. They said we can keep you overnight, and they did. And I'm glad they did. I said you can keep me for a couple of weeks if you want to. I just don't want to go in your damn army. Yeah. So Ronnie, I think he said he stayed up all night, continued hyperventilating, and then by the morning he was shaking, and they were became kind of afraid. Well, is this guy gonna like? die or something <laughs> we better get him out of here so then it was the next day they cut him loose with the 4F wow that, that, that was the supreme prize what about the 4F well from what I remember what I know of his story was that he made it through the written exam he was to the physical part to where you're stripped down and marched through a line and guy grabs your nuts and tells you to turn your head and cough they took one look at him. They yanked him out of the line, and I think he got a 4F also. <laughs> but y'all got out. Now, <clears throat> you come to L.A. Where were you staying while you were recording the record? I was staying at Tropicana on Santa Monica Boulevard. I think it's a Marriott now or something. Yeah, half a block down from La Cienega. Yeah. Uh, a block down parallel from Sunset Strip. It was just, to this day, some of my favorite, best memories of my whole life was being there, recording that album, staying at the Tropicana, being able to walk up to the strip, cruise the strip. Or walk to the studio, too. Yeah, and we walked to the studio. Was that your first time to Cali? First time to Cali. I loved it. Until this day, it's still some of my best memories. I, I just had a blast out there. I loved every minute of it. How long were you guys there? About six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah. Well, that that included uh, several gigs at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and then also taking a side trip up to San Francisco to play at the Fillmore with uh, the Flamin' Groovies, Alice Cooper, and Commander Cody. Wow. That was a good gig. And you're yeah. doing sessions, though, too. Yeah. For the album. What was it like working with Gallucci? I don't know. He, just, he seemed like, uh, I don't know, this little kind of strange guy to me. And, but, you know, to me, I wasn't working with him. He was working for us, you know. Yeah. So I never really looked at, I never thought about, oh, who's a good producer, who's better, this, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was mostly just in the music, mostly in my instrument and just playing. I didn't think about things like that at all. Did he tell you anything? Uh, he was telling other people things, you know, but to me, again, you know, it, it meant nothing to me. It could have been anybody in there. You guys were running your own show. Him being Don Gallucci didn't mean anything to me. He, well, he let us. He let us be ourselves. Yeah. And he also. How long were the sessions? Were they long ones? We go in and probably around noonish and stay until early evening. I, I was always the first one in there because I had mostly had nothing to do, and you guys were always a, a, a little kind of late. And but you'd go, we, we'd go for several hours. I mean, that's and if you listen to the box set, you can hear, you know, thirty-two takes of Down on the Street, and in, and then also there was like uh, the songs we didn't remember doing that ended up in the box set, which is like uh, sliding the blues, sliding the blues, and. Uh, 
Lost in the Future. Yeah, yeah. Lost in the Future. You never really did those live, huh? Oh, no. No. When we went to New York, we also did another one called Going Down to Egypt, I think. It was the only encore we ever did. Oh. Were you playing uh, songs from the album during these gigs? Yeah, basically the do, doing the album. You were yeah. doing the album. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was it like playing the whiskey in those days? <clears throat> well, we weren't playing the whiskey in those days. No, when we were doing the album, we did the whiskey. Yeah, whiskey came on a little later, though. No, it was the same trip. I remember. I mean, there's later whiskey too. Yeah, yeah I didn't. I, I, I the only time I played the whiskey was was during the sessions. Okay. Yeah. And that that was when Pop went out in the crowd and poured the hot wax on his chest. And okay, so you get the album done and you deliver it to Electra. What do they say? Um, I think they were thinking it was better than the first album. And uh, they, they tried to get behind it a little more. Still not with great support. But uh, they had a gatefold, a sleeve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Do you remember taking that picture? Yeah, I remember perfectly taking that picture. Yeah. The photographer, as a matter of fact, was. He was a guy who did all Jimi Hendrix photos. Wow. And he was kind of famous. And uh, Ed Kareff. Yeah. And um, who may still be alive. And the, the session, the photo action photo session was kind of long. It took a lot, a lot of pictures. It's in the studio. In the studio. And about every ten minutes, the photographer would disappear to the bathroom. <laughs> What's that about? And we're going, What's up? Is he sick? <laughs> <laughs> so as it turns out, he was doing blow. He's judge. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, I didn't even know what the hell it was. What, what's he doing? Oh, he's doing cocaine. I said, oh. And then he, after, later on, he started, he offered us some. I never had that stuff before. Sure, I'll try it. So the first time is that photo session. Is that what the studio looked like when you were recording? Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's the, the, the famous thing in Electra's ads at the time. They yeah. would show this, the empty studio with the Persian rug on the floor. Yeah. So then the, when the album was the, the, the four guys in the band, they, Electra didn't want to use my picture. Who did the cover? Well, um, pictures from that photo session. Bill Heimall, I think, was the was the art director. Oh, good memories. Yeah, he was the art director at Electric. I think he probably did that they montage. Took pictures from the session in montage. Yeah. Dave's got the trippiest eyes on that thing. They're like you could jump into them. Yep. They're so huge, so deep. Yeah. Some people swore they saw my picture on the cover, buried in the thing, but yeah. no. No, you're not. No, there, there there's a picture of me on the. Uh, the, the, the bonus track Funhouse that came out a couple of years ago and it's it's got the same color values and stuff and it, it, and it has this thing like not a stooge <laughs> oh, yeah, but, it, right. but it's a picture of me at age 20 and that was quite something to see alright can we talk about the songs like Down on the Streets yeah Down on the Street was uh like we did most all of our songs, we'd kick them around in the practice room. And then if we, we all heard something that we thought 
might be able to work with, then we start concentrating on that. It became that rip. Right. And uh, Dave learned it easy on bass, and so that was another reason we did it. Jim put the words to it. It was down on the beach, and I'm floating around, and I'm real mind. There ain't no walls. I'm going, yeah, that's cool, but, you know, the beach, you know, we're not really looking for the beach kind of scene, you know. What's better, what's tougher, what's cooler is the street, you know. That's where you're going to find people that would like us. They're not going to be on the beach. They're going to be in the street. And so he goes, oh, that's not a bad idea. So instead of changing all the lyrics, all he, from down on the beach, he went to down on the street. Right. Now, the real old mind... That was an Ann Arbor expression. Yeah. And, it, and that's, a comp, that's also accompanied by putting your hand on top of your head and flipping it up and right, down. Right. And we, we tried to figure out the origins of that. It might be, oh, the mind or something like that. But it was, a, it was an expression that many of us used during that time. Out of your mind. Well, yeah, that, yeah it was shortened it up. I think maybe we started it because it was out of sight, out of mind. And instead of saying out of sight, out of mind, we just go, oh, mind. Yeah. Oh. But, but everybody in the Ann Arbor started saying it too it's kind of a mental state yeah kind of <laughs> I think I've been old mind ever since real old now, real old mind what about loose um, loose is the same thing suddenly kicked around the studio and uh Jim put excellent lyrics to it. And, uh, Not in the farmhouse, but in the studio. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had, no, they had they, they had that was, they had that all that all that stuff together before we went to LA. Okay. 1970, we had together. The only thing we didn't have together was LA blues. Okay. We, we, we had, but, but had loose, dirt and all that stuff. Dirt. But loose. You know what's a trip about loose? Is that riff ended up in a Deep Purple song called "Smoke on the Water." Yeah, I did. You ever notice close, that? Close. I mean, you guys are before them. Yeah, close to yeah. What's that? But Ronnie probably made up the. Ronnie probably made up the the way the chords slide up and down there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, dirt. I remember saying, "Well, we need a soul song, and I want to use this beat." Boom, bam, bam, boom, bam. It was sort of a surf beat, so backwards. I started playing that beat. Dave came up with the bass part. Boom, 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 boom. Which was sort of like born under a bad sign. Yeah. And Ronnie put a guitar to it, Jim put the lyrics to it. That's how dirt was dirt. What about TBI? TBI, you know, was, we were trying to put together an album, so we are trying to think, well, now we need a song that's going to be more down and driving and straight ahead. Right. And uh, that particular beat was a really popular Motown beat. Yeah. It was used a lot in Motown. Songs. Right. Snare on the one. Yeah. Yeah. The four chops snare beat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think, again, we just started with the feel of the beat. And uh, Ronnie was playing. What about 1970? The song 1970. Yeah. Was it really called I Feel All Right? Uh, no, it was 1970. Okay. Because the single says I Feel All Right. Well, they, they added that. Is that the record cup? Because that no, was. It says 1970. I Feel All Right. I Feel All Right. 
Right, right. So people could recognize the, the hook in the song or something. Okay, okay. There, was there any singles from the first album? Yeah, I Want to Be Your Dog in 1969, I think. It's double-sided. It was a single, both sides were dog. I think I've got a, a scratchy copy of that somewhere, actually, yeah. But uh, 1970 was a single from 70. Uh, I mean, Down the Street and 70. Yeah, right, right. yeah and, and, and that's, I made it on the B side of that one. They took the razor blade to my solo quite adeptly. But I also was like double track. They called me in for a second session to overdub. And ended up using both of them. At the same time. Which is sort of reminiscent of uh, the new album with uh, Fried. Right, where they had like three tracks composite and then and then <coughs> LA Blues is the one that's well we always had a thing we'd call freakouts which was just total play whatever you want right. not a song play your drum chops play wild solos Steve Blue really good sax on it I guess it's just as free fun as well, you can well Gal- Gallucci said Rather than have an extended ending to Funhouse, which is used to be the last song, and then we'd go into this ending, he says, make a separate song out of it. So that was when we had a separate session just to do that song, to sort of start cold with that song. Yes. That was the one where I I made sure I was pretty psychedelicized when I went into the studio to do it. I think that I think I ended up getting real scared of Jim. <laughs> And it kind of comes out on the music, but but they, you know it, it, it worked out. Now you deliver the record; the company likes it. You're gonna go tour it. Tour it. Tour, okay. tour it hard, east, west, coast, all through south, all Midwest. That was now. That were those gigs different than the first album gigs? Uh, yeah, they were mustered. Uh, more people knew who we were. We were getting better bills, more money, and. Um, Playing in New York and celebrities coming to see us yeah, and stuff. Lots of New York. Is that the Maxes? Maxes. No, it was that Lunganos. Lunganos. Maxes, Electric Circus on St. Mark's Place. There was a really cool venue called Electric Circus. So they're a lot different. And then what happens? Then what happened was uh, you got scissors. Oh, I, I got I got I got scissored uh, after six months, and Jim says, "Well, I want to do something else." And you know, at that point in time, I was I was thinking about quitting, but I was I because I, 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 I wanted to get out of the nightmare of the band had become because of substance abuse. And we were, you know, being late for all the gigs and stuff. And and like when you when when your when your smack dealer drives you to the gig in his limousine, you know, something's just like, well, this isn't exactly right. And so, so six months of touring, you're out. And they, they they let me go. And Jim called me on the phone, fired me over the phone, and I was so happy. I called up my boss at the record store. I said, could I have my job back? He says, come on in tomorrow. And, and you know, still remain being friends with Jim. And I said, you know, no hard feelings. Yeah, yeah. And but you guys keep playing. 
you keep playing with that. This is where James came into the picture. Because the band did actually no, break up. The band actually did break up for a while. And Steve wasn't the only one just cut loose. Everybody was cut loose. Well, but isn't Dave... Yeah, it's Dave. But we still had our house. David, Bob, Dave was the first one to get fired. Yeah. He gets cut before you. Yeah. Goose, Goose Lake? We still had yeah. our house. We still had our house. Right, what we happened still to Goose Lake? Equipment. Well, uh, Dave had a girlfriend whose uh, father was a pharmacist, and she worked part-time with her dad in the pharmacy. And while she was there, she'd always be grabbing handfuls of pills. So Dave had been drinking before the show, and she gave him a quality right before stage. She got up there. He couldn't even hardly hold his base. This is in front of... Uh over 100,000 people. He couldn't play the songs, and what he was trying to play sounded so bad. One of the crew guys went up, turned his amp off, and he didn't even know it was off. That's how fucked up it was. So we finished the rest of the set without any bass. People went absolutely crazy, man. They went nuts. It was the first time people tried to storm the stage. They had a 12-foot fence between the crowd and the stage. People were falling over that 12-foot fence to get to it. To get to it. It was the third day of the festival. And well, everybody was really fried. Well, another thing that happened during that set was... We were. It was later on in the set, and it was, but it was during the point in time where I was playing. I think we were doing 1970 or something, and we blew out the power. Oh. And so it was just me and Scotty playing acoustically, and but then what happened? I heard I heard this from people in the crowd. Heard this from people that were in the crowd that were all tripped out. The sound came on. All of a sudden, and they heard this insane drums and saxophone, and then the guitar started playing again. And it was so out there that that people literally started freaking out. Okay. You know, having a bummer, as we used to say. So D- Dave gets replaced? Uh, Dave got replaced by Zeke Zittner. He's a roadie? He was one of the crew guys, yeah. Uh, You're playing with him with Zeke? Yeah. Then you leave... Yeah. Then you do gigs with just Zeke, you, your brother? No, we had no gigs. Oh, after we Steve still had, yeah, over. And after Steve was over, we still had the house and we still had our equipment. So Jim wasn't even in to practicing, so I got Zeke and myself in the practice room. And uh, one other guy, oh, Bill Cheetah. And I said, I'm starting a new band. It's going to be called Rock Action. And these are the songs we're going to do. We wrote five songs. Well, see, I remember, remember before I got before I got fired, I remember we, it was originally called the Rock Active Band. And it was because... When I say me, tomorrow. All right. And... Uh, so rocked after, but yeah, we just we basically had a different band in the house. 
Who's playing in it? Bill Cheatham. Bill Cheatham, Zeke, and myself. Okay. It's a trio. Well, there's a song called I'm Becoming an Alcoholic. I remember that one. I was writing all the lyrics to all the songs. One was I'm Becoming an Alcoholic. One of them was Out on the Range. <laughs> it was out, out, out on the range where things are sometimes strange. I don't think I'll ever be the same. I'm out on the range. And the alcoholic was, I drank a case of beer, I smoked an ounce of head. No, I was still out on the range. <laughs> so and what then, happened after that? We did had a little cover of Gigs? the song Peter Gunn. We did a little different version of Peter Gunn, and I called it Peter Scott is Done. And, you know, they, some of the songs were bad, you know, they were, they were okay. And then Jim wanted to get the band back together. So that's when James Williamson, who moved from Birmingham into Ann Arbor, he was a hot guitar player. He kind of slid into the picture. We got him over to the house one day. He started kicking around shit in the next room. And, uh, Both him and Ronnie on guitar. Both him and Ronnie on guitar. Who's on bass, Zeke? Zeke's on bass. And that didn't last too long. Any gigs? Um, yeah, we did some. We did uh, New York gigs, Electric Circus. I think we did a, we did Max's. And then uh, that was over. And then uh, Jim left the country. The house was gone. It was being uh, torn down. They built a bank in its place. And... Um, so then again, we're homeless and no band, and so uh, it's back to mom's house. Right. Yeah, that's he, he's in England? Yeah. And he took James with him. They went to England. And uh, Jim got a little record deal. And uh, one day he called us up and said, uh, we're trying to do an album. We can't find any players. We auditioned 50 different guys, and we want you and Ronnie to come over. But we want Ronnie to play bass. And, you know, being a musician, you're out of a gig. Yeah, I'll take it. I want a gig, you know. So that's the way Ronnie felt. He wanted a gig. And he was willing to play bass. <laughs> I'm a bass player. <laughs> Sounds like he was demoted. <laughs> well, he did. Felt, he feel that way? He did. He felt like he was demoted. But I tell you, Ronnie was an excellent bass. Yeah, player. I think so. Well, he plays the bass on uh, on the Stooges, the Stooges stuff on Skull Rings. What's funny is he started out on the bass. So you guys go to England. Well, actually, he started out playing guitar, but his experiences in bands were with the bass. Well, I thought he was playing the wah-wah and the fuzz. Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about when he was younger. Okay. He, uh, his Spanish guitar, uh, flamenco-type stuff, and uh, classical guitar. Right. He had lessons in that. I had lessons in snare drum and harmonica. I actually played the Monica for a while. So you guys go to England, and that becomes the raw power? That becomes the raw power. Now, they have the songs, and they're showing you the songs? No, we can't work okay. them out there. Um, James, just like we normally do, we kick around, and there'd be a riff, and we try to build a song off of that. You know, put some verses, bridges, solos in between the beginning and the end, and 
But they were all James's riffs. They weren't Ronnie's riffs. Right. Now you do a gig over there. We did a gig. Is that during the sessions? <coughs> at the Roundhouse with Lou Reed. And, uh, we freaked England out so bad. They didn't know what to think. They didn't know if they liked us or not. For a long time, consensus was they didn't like us. But you only played the one gig. One gig. Then you go back and you finish the record. Did the record. Went back to California. Right. They set us up in a big house in the Hollywood Hills, top of Laurel Canyons. This is uh, the Bowie people. Yeah. And uh, we spent a lot of time there just going to the rehearsal studio. Coming back and having a party. We'd have a party every night. <laughs> we weren't doing that many gigs. And on top of that, all the bad things were starting to compound, get worse, and heavier. Yeah. So then we found, well, we got some gigs, we got a tour around the road. Because the album comes out. And we're going all the way what did the record there. company think of Rob Power? Uh, they weren't sure. They didn't know what to do with it. They never heard anything like it. They didn't know how to promote it. They didn't know how to book us. You know, they didn't know anything. They did a lot of whiskey gigs. We did a lot of whiskey gigs because we were there. Right. We played to Starwood. Starwood. But to bring in a piano guy. Right. That Scott Thurston, Thurston and Robert Chef. But this is oh, right, after, right. But this is after the album's done. Uh, this is in California that you bring them in. Right. Whose idea was that? Well, you know, kind of like the way Steve was uh, introduced to the band. Yeah. So felt that we needed something else besides just guitar, and bass, and drums. We needed another instrument in there fill it in to give it more of a wall. And, um, so let's try keyboards. And Chef is the first guy. Chef is uh, was a keyboard player in the Prime Movers. Right. He's he's also currently known as Blue Jean Tyranny. Right. And and he's he's in, and, he, and he's a very respected yeah. uh, modern composer. And I heard something actually on uh, on the radio last week. And I heard this thing with this all with this interesting keyboard stuff with then toy pianos on it and such. And I said, "Wow, that's really interesting." And then they said it was him. I said, "Oh, that's cool." Wow. So he only does a few gigs with you, though, right? Yeah, he didn't do all that much. Um, and then you bring in Scott Thurston. Well, Thurston was there. Thurston left. Robert came in, Robert left, Thurston came back. Oh, okay. Where'd you find Thurston? On a uh, bulletin board at SIR Studio Instruments. So you didn't really know him, you just answered an ad. Yeah, yeah okay. You're doing these gigs, do you tour a lot? Well, you know, the record label didn't really know what to do with us right. at that time. We weren't touring that much. Yeah. That was what the worst thing was for the band. Was You're just staying in Hollywood and playing these gigs all local. All the idle time and all the girls out there with their purses loaded with drugs and, you know, just too much free time. Yeah. Just, you know, 
it's that, the same thing we had with the first two albums. The record play, the record company didn't know what to do with us. They didn't know where to put us. Who's going to like these guys? But at least you were torn with that, those records. Yeah. But we but, weren't getting the support. Yeah, I understand. We weren't getting enough support from the record label itself. They're dumb fucks. Yeah, they were uh, dumb fucks. Okay. So what happens? Idle Time just destroys the band? Idle Time basically destroyed the band, and uh, there was this thing Bowie had going on with his guitar player, Mick Ronson. Yeah. They were trying to make those two guys like stars. So James saw that, well, me and Iggy could do this. And this is James that was invited into the Stooges. Now wants to take over the Stooges. Bum rush. He wants to make me and Ronnie sidemen, and him and Jim the leaders of the band. So he had a girlfriend that was a contract lawyer, and one day he came up with this thick fucking contract saying me and Ronnie were sidemen, and we'd get paid less, he'd get the lion's share with him and Jim, and we just looked at me and Ronnie looked at each other and go, fuck that. You know, this is our band. We started it. Yeah. This guy's going to come in and try to push us to sidemen. Said no fucking way. And we had no gigs in it. We yeah. had no shows in it. Uh, up at the house one day, someone who worked for Main Man caught Jim with a needle in his arm. Flip. Totally went crazy. You guys are done. You're finished. Next thing you know, your house in the Hollywood Hills is gone. Get up. So we went down to the strip area and you know, we found Howard's weekly rental place where we were staying. Ronnie had a friend from Ann Arbor that moved out there that was supporting him. And they got an apartment at the Coronet on the strip next to the comedy store. Yeah. And I had no place to go. I was sleeping on anyone's floor or couch I could, just every day going someplace different. Where's your drums? The drums are at the airport in storage. Damn. And uh, so Ronnie decides he's going to start another band. You know. So he got Dennis Thompson to come out from Detroit and uh, Jimmy Rucka to come out from Detroit to play bass. And this guy, John Riley, who was back in the whole thing, was, you know, supporting them to get them started as a band. And here I am, nowhere. And one day I went over to Ronnie and said, Ronnie, can I sleep behind your couch? Behind it, not behind on it. it. Behind it. And he goes, yeah, but not for long. You can stay, but not for long. So I think I stayed about a week, and he was saying, you got to go. Scissors. I had no money. I had no job. I had a drug habit. I was in a really bad place. So I was just I was at a loss for what I could do. So I remembered I had a drum kit at the airport. So I got it arranged to have uh, have it picked up. I went out there. We had to pay a storage fee. I got the kit. I brought it back. Dennis Thompson just came to town. He had no drums. I sold him my drum kit. I bought a one-way ticket to Detroit. Let's see it. Whoa. 
See, this is important because people ask why we don't do raw power songs. Well, because uh, one, Ronnie won't do them, and the other is uh, James uh, claimed all the publishing rights to the songs. So that's two reasons not to do them right there. It's a different I wouldn't band. mind doing them. I like the songs, yeah, yeah. you know. I would do them, but it's a different band, yeah. So you go back to Ann Arbor. I go back to Ann Arbor, and I lay around licking my wounds. and sick of drugs. I want to quit. I'm not going to do this anymore. I cold turkey myself. <clears throat> took me two years before I started feeling normal. They didn't go to any doctors. They didn't go to any psychiatrists, no support groups. I just did it all on my own. I made up my mind. I was done. It's finished. That was in 75. That's when I quit. Wow. But then you start playing again. Scott Morgan. Uh, no, actually, uh, I knew this guy, Lance Louie Long. What a guy. Yeah. Rest his soul. Yeah. And, uh, Good cat. He had a tree outfit where, you know, where he cut trees down. And uh, I saw him one day. He goes, I'm going to get you out there and show you what work is. And that's the kind of guy he was, you know. Call me Snotty Scotty. Come on, Snotty Scotty. I'm going to show you what work is. So he did. He got me out there, worked my ass off. Sawing trees. Sawing trees, man. Humping asses and elbows. That's what he said. I want to see a lot of asses and elbows out there. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a little uh, drum kit and his amp set up in his garage. So after work, we'd stop at McDonald's, get a burger, he'd buy us a six-pack of beer, and then he'd go, all right, motherfucker, now get your ass out there in that garage and start playing those drums. And okay. So it was actually Lance Louie who got me back up going and playing. Okay. Right. And I thanked him many times. I'm glad I got a chance to thank him for it. <clears throat> and then uh, one day Fred Smith came by Scott Morgan because the MC5 had broken up for and quite they, a while they then. had the Scott Morgan band Fred was playing with that band but Fred took over that band and changed it to Sonic's Rendezvous right so he wanted me to be the drummer in the band and I kind of hemming on around and said okay right. and I was really really glad I did that because Fred man, it was just nothing like playing with Fred first time I played with Fred the only thing I could think of is now I know why they call him Sonic. Yeah. He had just this power in his guitar, man. It was just unreal. Yeah. And you did, you did gigs. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did gigs. You we recorded? We recorded. We had enough songs for two good albums. And what happened? It, Fred just didn't want to get in the studio. Fred really felt that more people that heard his songs the more chance he had of getting his material ripped off. Oh. He just felt really protective of his material. And um, he didn't think we were ready. But towards the end of that band, we were getting really good. People were really starting to like it. It was getting tight, and it was sounding good. Now, this is what, 76? Uh, no, this is... Uh, 80s. Oh, really? Because before that, you toured with Hick. Yeah. With we, Fred. We had the band, 
right. and then Jim asked Brandon, myself and Gary without Scott Morgan would, Gary Rasmussen Gary would be his band on a tour he had set up in Europe and it was a big one too a lot of shows and uh, so we negotiated a little deal price deal and weekly salary thing and uh, we went out on the road with them after that tour was over Jim was uh, friends with David Bowie and he came up to me and says uh, me and David want you to go up and spend some time with us in the country you know Jim was going I want you to come along with us because I want you to be my drummer and I was kind of afraid you know I was, what go out in the country with Jim and David Bowie <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I was thinking, well, we got our Sonic's Rendezvous band, you know. I really like playing with Fred. So I made the choice to go back to America. We continued on with the Sonic's band. I started getting better, tighter, more people liking it. And then when that broke up, I tried to get a hold of Jim, and all I could say was, you made your choice. Always from that. You had your chance. You made your choice. To go to the country. Yeah. Oh, man. The the, the Sonic Run of you, man, did record, though. Uh, Some singles. We did City Sling. Yeah. And... Great song. Electrophonic Tonic. And the song... um, was the name of that one more it was uh, Sweet Nothing which is a really good song but it never got a vocal track on it and we were doing that when Patty was pregnant with Pat, Fred and Patty's uh, first Jackson. son Jackson and Fred was just a nervous dad and he wanted to play so we went to Hardy Fields in Detroit on Woodward, way down in the hood with the boarded up windows all over the place. And I recorded City Slang. And uh, soon after that, uh, Patty had Jackson. And I think we went on for maybe three or four months after that and then everything kind of fell apart and then Patty wanted to get back out on the road so we started doing gigs with her did gigs with her in Chicago and Ann Arbor and New York she got pregnant again and um, I guess Fred Patty had an idea of having a band themselves so Fred was doing gigs with Patty we were just kind of see ya you kept playing drums yeah we went back to the Scott Morgan band yep me and Gary and uh, Scott myself and uh, oh yeah we uh, had a couple different other guitar players that came in and out we'd have a new guitar player every couple weeks trying to find somebody so I did a lot more three sets a night gigs with that. And then uh, after years and years of making 
30 or 40 dollars a show you know I just kind of lost heart in it you know I didn't want to do it anymore so I uh, <clears throat> started getting offers from other players this one guy Sonny Benson from New York ended up recording three albums with him we did a major giant European tour and uh Sonny was a good guy. He's well known. He has no audience in America. He's pretty well known all through Europe, though. Then Dennis Tech invited me to Australia, did an album in Houston, Texas. We took it to Australia, did a uh, tour of the country. And uh, after Dennis Tech, I think I did some shows with uh, the Dark Carnival, which is brother's band that was after Destroy All Monsters. Wasn't the colonel involved? With- yeah, Niagara's husband was kind of headed up the show. And it was well, Scotty, we got three gigs in Canada, one in London, one in Toronto, and one somewhere else. And... Uh, I'm going to guarantee you $250 a show if you go along with this. And uh, I was broke. We had, me and those had bills that were piling up. And, you know, I was landscaping and, you know, doing these $8 and $10 hour jobs and getting nowhere. So I said, yeah. And then at the end of that little candidate tour, man, I said, all right, where's my money? He goes, I lied. He looked me right in the eyes and said, I lied. I got you out here on a lie. You didn't make any money. So I, I kind of started flipping out. My brother gave me a hundred bucks out of his own pocket. Did you do drumming after that? I, I did. I got into a thing doing parties, house parties. You just get a bunch of musicians. You get a case of beer or two cases and get some big fat joints and you get high and half drunk and you, everybody plays you know to me that was a lot a lot of fun man I love doing that to this day you know it's just jamming house parties any musician that wants to come by bring your guitar you know but you keep calling Egg keep calling Egg keep talking to his manager and well, uh, Jim's got a movie with Johnny Depp. He's got a tour of Germany. He's really busy right now, but he's not opposed to the idea. And this I, is in the 90s. Yeah, and I come... Uh, no, I started in the 80s. Like wow. 89, I got a hold of him, and I said, uh, it's been 20 years since first album. I think it'd be really cool if we could get the band back together and do an album. You know, it's kind of like a reunion. But Jim's not into reunions. Is it all right? So I went to New York. Jim was living there. Got a room at Chelsea Hotel. Got in touch with him. We split the cost of a rental studio. We went in there. He was playing guitar. I was playing drums. Kicked around for about three hours. He had his little tape recorder. And when we were done with that little session, I uh, said, Jim, what do you think about getting the band back together for a 20-year reunion? 
I don't want to talk about it. That's all he had to say. What were you guys jamming? Um, I would throw out some beats and he would play guitar to it. And um, it's on home. Boy. The next time you get called, it's to be on Skull Ray? No, no, I kept calling Art. Yeah. I kept calling Art and. Uh, and Art changed his phone number, and I'm going, oh, God, he must be getting sick of me calling him. <laughs> but it, he told me later I wasn't the reason his number was changed. So I got his new number, and I kept bugging him. And then uh, the skull ring thing came along. And then... Now we're talking 2003. In fact, you were playing with Ronnie and me and Jay Maskins. Yeah, that's what we did before that. Before that, yeah, that's how that whole thing came about. Jay Masters, Mike Watt, taking Ron Ashton and myself out on the road. Iggy got word, heard people loved him. His very words himself was, who is this Jay guy who's stealing my gold? So, and he also admitted, he goes, if you guys weren't out there and playing and getting some response, then I would probably never done it the fact that you were out there. So, I would say Jay Masters had a big, big part of getting the band back together. I don't know if that's what his intentions were, but that's how I it just did playing with you, like me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but you get called for the skull ring. Get called for the skull rings, practice. We went down there, cold. Florida. Florida, we went in the studio, cold, no material. Start kicking around some things. Okay, we'll play that. We'll play that eight times. Then we're gonna play this. That's me. Thank you. Hello. And did those songs in one day, writing, arranging, and recording, all in about six hours. Never in heard them play. I was working them out because they told us we were coming back in two weeks to do the tracks that we had come up with. So for two weeks, every day, for five, six hours a day, I'd listen to those tracks and I was coming up with drum chops and different things here and there. We got back down to Miami and they said, oh, we're going to take the tracks you guys did here and I just flipped. For weeks, in the morning, I'd wake up in a panic. I'd go, no, this can't be true, this can't be right. Because I was looking at it, it's like, this is one of the most important things I'm going to be doing. Yeah. You know, we're going to be back playing with Jim and new material. And to me, it came out so rough and so unrehearsed and so not really sounding like me, myself, sounding like I knew what I was doing that I was having panic attacks, you know. I, I, just, I felt like I was ripped off. How could they do that, man? How could they just take something like that and put it on a mountain? So after that, I swore. Anytime I was in the studio and anything I'd play, I'd play it like it was the final take, yeah. Because I wasn't. I was just diddling along, thinking about shit, you know. Oh, what could I do here? I wasn't even really playing. Okay. The Skull Ring record comes out. People say... But is it talking about gigs? 
No. It was a project. Right. Scouring Elm came out, and all I remember hearing was like, oh, the ones that Ron Scott played on, those are the best tracks on Elm. The other tracks on Elm were completely produced and tight, and not a beat or note or twang out of tune, and sounded 100% professional, and then here's this kind of half sloppy, like, crap about frying some guy's hair up in an electric chair. <laughs> And people are going, those are the ones we like. (laughs) So then one day, Art called me up, and he goes, well, Scotty, it looks like it's going to happen. It looks like the band's going to get back together, and you're going to do a show in California. And I was just, all right, man, after all these years, man, finally. Because the bands I were in were good bands. I liked playing them, but I never felt at home. I never felt like this is the band I belong in. <clears throat> you know, because I started as Stooge and I always felt that's where I belong. And then I became a Stooge once again and it was like I had been away on a long journey for many years and then I got to go home and have a big dinner. That's the way it felt to me. You know, it's like, ah, I'm home. Ah, the food is good. Yeah. Did Coachella. Did the Coachella with Mike Watt, who was uh, pretty close to deadly sickness and (laughs) pulled himself out of it, man, like a real musician. Did the gig. People loved it, and uh, that was close to four years ago. Yeah, yeah. in April. Yeah. And we've been doing gigs since. How many? 75 now. 75. And then the uh, Weirdness album, after 69 gigs, October, last October. Yep, October 06. Now that was pulled together from a bunch of demo songwriting sessions, right? Yeah, we probably had about 50 hours in kicking around ideas. Uh, Jim put them on a small tape recorder. Mini disc. Mini disc, and uh, just kept compiling them. And then when the time did come to do an album, he just went through his little catalog new stuff and uh, picked out the stuff he thought he could do his best job with and then we started arranging and fine tuning of those but trying not to beat them into the ground I mean you know not to flatline it still have interest in it but uh we actually, I think, kind of maybe over-rehearsed a little bit. But uh, it came out good. It's different. It's the Stooges. You know, there will be another album. And uh, It's going to be a first U.S. Stooges tour in yeah, many years. Many, many, many years. Jim was having problems with his U.S. tours. They had to cancel some lack of attendance. Lack now, what's this tour looking like? Almost clean. Yeah, this tour looks like they want us to do two shows a night. (laughs) 
Well, we'll be back, you know. Yeah. We'll, we'll be back in America. We'll be back to Japan. We got a back to Athens, Greece. We love the Stooges. Now we're going to Jerusalem, Serbia, Serbia, Poland, Poland. Back to uh, Sweden. France, France, July third. Hopefully, England. Oh, there is one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know the exact date. We have an Ireland in September. That's right. We have a uh, the Pink Pop in the Netherlands. Right. Which is going to turn out to be a really huge show. They're adding some really hot bands on that show. The three-day festival is going to be really cool. The biggest difference between a Stooge gig now for you guys and a Stooge gig in the old days? Well, a lot of it is uh, the more people. And uh, for a while, we, you know, as we grew, the, the age of the people that saw us was with us. Now when we do a gig... A lot of, I'd say, two-thirds of the audience is people who weren't born <laughs> when we had started up. And kids these days look more into the history of music than we did when we were younger. Yeah. And they see the Stooges and they go, oh, we know about them. Isn't Jim the Godfather punk? And they didn't even know some of the songs, no. but once they hear them, since they're such classic songs... They they, 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 you know, they just grab you. Is there a different dynamic for you guys playing on stage? Uh, there's a different dynamic just because we've aged with our instruments. And uh, a big different diameter is you yourself, Mike Watt. <laughs> I think you bring a lot to the table, a lot to the stage. Myself, personally, I love playing with you. Amen, me too. Lots of legend in his own right. And as I said in many interviews before, I don't think we could have found a better bass player, a better person to be in the band than Mike. I, I agree. So that brings us up to now. What about you, Steve, after your Stooge days? Boy, oh boy. Well, let's see. I was, I was still in Ann Arbor, and it, we did it did some more Carnal Kitchen. And that, at that point in time, we were playing like uh, semi-contemporary jazz covers and things like that. And I got in this band called the Mojo Boogie Band, and we started out as a blues band and ended up as some sort of like Midwest Bob Seger protege type band. And then a lot of stuff went to hell in Ann Arbor because of the drogas and everything. And I beat it out to California in 77. And it was one of the best moves I had ever made. And ended up playing uh, with Commander Cody, who I knew from Ann Arbor. That's why I moved to the Bay Area. I said, I know guys out there. Maybe I can get a job. And I certainly did. And then I did that for a while. And then uh, 
played with Snakefinger for a while. We did a European tour in 83. And then uh, it also hooked up with the Violent Femmes, who were recommended, uh, you know, I was recommended to by a friend back in Wisconsin. And uh, played with them for a couple of years. And I kind of fell into a relationship where the woman I ended up marrying didn't want me touring. And foolish me didn't bail on that thing when I should have. And spent a bunch of years mostly being an electrician and crawling around attics and basements and learning that trade. And I was pretty good at it. But still playing the horn. I was still playing occasionally. The Femmes would come to town, or I'd play this thing and that thing. And, I, you know, me and the ex-wife had, had, had another version of Carnal Kitchen for a couple of years, and we did, some, we did, did you know, as many gigs as we could and play around the Bay Area and Northern California. And uh, then... Uh, you and Jay come to town with Ronnie. And you and Jay came to town with Ronnie. And, uh, you know, Ronnie said, well, it's not... No, no money for you tonight, but maybe there's something down the road. And boy, he was right. And I don't know, it was like maybe a year after that or something that I got the call from uh, from Jim, who I hadn't heard from, you know, or talked to in over 20 years. And he says, we're doing Coachella, you know. Do you want to do, do it? And I said, yeah. He says, do you need to rehearse? I said, no. I know the material. And we started out with that, and it was like, I hope there's a buzz from this, and then the rest is history, as they say. So uh, I'm delighted to be back on board with this thing. And I'm, like I said, I'm doing the radon thing in between times. And How did that happen? What? You meeting the radon guy? Oh, I was, I was playing. Uh, a friend of mine hooked me up with this band called Liquor Ball. And they were like, well, like guitar, bass, and drums. But they just improvised, and it was kind of wild and stuff. And so my friend said, oh, you should play with these guys. And I did, and the second time I played with them, uh, we, we were on a bill with this guy's called Temple of Bone Mateen, who have got a pretty good reputation in alternative music. <coughs> and uh, they had a sax player, and I was just going to leave the gig. It's like, okay, that's over. I'm out of here. And they had sax players. Oh, I guess I better sit in with you guys. And the bass player that night was Scott Neidegger. The Radon guy. And then and Vinny from Temple of Bone Matan and Ed Wilcox. You know, and then followers of music will recognize those names. Let me take a break. Yeah. I got to go download a brown buddy. Yeah, we're almost done. Yeah. And uh, so then... Uh, I started going down to the, the, the uh, there was also a Kundahola in the Beaches, the guy from Czech Republic, sure, sure. Uh, Camille, and uh, played some house parties in San Jose, and then at one point, uh, Radon flew me up to Portland, and it was like Steve McKay and the Radon Ensemble, and I was like headlining myself. And so this is cool. I've never... I think that's the, the run of games where I see you play with Smegma and Richard Meltzer. Right, exactly. That was not, and there was that was another thing. And Richard Meltzer, who was a big fan from way back in 1970, and I yeah. hadn't seen him since then. And there he is, so crusty and and, and 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 spouting his foul mouth and you know, over the weird noise of, that is Smegma. 
And I, they actually put out an album called uh, 30 Years of Service, and it's called Smegma with Steve McKay. So I got to, I got to get on that and, uh, and you know, do all that touring in, in the States and Europe, and hopefully more of that will be coming up in between times. And I'm hoping for all the best. And I was just talking to my wife, Patty, and she's quoting me, quoting to me from a, a lengthy and very positive review in the San Francisco Chronicle Sunday Magazine. And they have this little man, a little icon, and he's either left his seat, asleep in his seat, looking with interest, or standing up and clapping. And he's standing up and clapping. And they, and they say, like, you know, we haven't lost any of our old fire from the old days, but, you know, the, 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 the various social commentary and, and the lyrics and everything, she really, really liked it. Or he, Jan, this is probably a guy. Well, we're at the end of the show, man, and I want to thank you both for talking to me and especially for letting me play with you. Well, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure playing with you, and it's a pleasure to be on the air with you. And yeah. We'll come back again, we hope. Yeah, I'd like to thank Mike for having me on the show and thank all you people for all the good spirit and knowing that you all love Mike as much as we do. Thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks, Mike. It's the March 7, 2007 edition of Watt for Pedro Show. Keep your powder dry.